you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And as you're doing that, I want you to, to think about something, to imagine something that hopefully hopefully will never happen. But can you imagine um, coming to potluck tonight? Uh, you come to potluck tonight, and in the middle of it, you see um, Paul and, and Joel come up to me, and they begin to publicly call me out for the way that I've been acting at potluck. They say this is out of step with the gospel. Um and just as you're about to have a little bit more rice, you, you maybe hear Joel start asking me some pointed questions, saying that the way I'm acting does not coincide with the, what I say I believe about the truth of the gospel. Can, can you imagine yourself in that situation of sitting at the tables? Um, it would be awkward, to say the least, for everyone involved. I don't think it's a perfect parallel, but take Joel and Paul and me out of the picture and, and put the apostles Peter and Paul in, and you might have an idea of actually what's going on in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, what it may have looked like to see this confrontation happen. We'll read that in a, in a moment, but before we read those verses, let's, let's recap a little bit uh, as we finish out these final verses of this narrative kind of biographical section of Galatians. It started, you remember, back in, um, in verse 11, and you remember part of Paul's burden is he's trying to show that, that the gospel he's preaching is not from him, it's not something he made up, and it's not something that was delivered to him by the, the leaders in Jerusalem, but it's something that God has given him. The, the gospel, this message, is divine. It's not human in origin. And so he's defending also his, his apostleship. He's saying um, that he is just as valid as an apostle as these other apostles in Jerusalem. You remember he describes how after his conversion on the road to Damascus, he spent some time taking some trips to the north, uh, he ended up in Jerusalem three years after he was saved. He was there for about two weeks with Peter, where he met Peter. He also met James, but that was the only contact he had in Jerusalem. Uh, he left and went back north towards Antioch, was in some, some different areas while he was there. And, and he says that the people in Jerusalem and in the area around Judea, they, they did not know who he was. They'd never seen him by, before, but they, they knew the message that he was, was preaching. They knew that that he had been transformed, that this man who was a persecutor was now proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And we saw last week how Paul made this, this second trip to Jerusalem after his conversion, 14 years after his conversion in response to a revelation. And while he was there, remember this meeting we talked about, he's there with the, the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, Peter and, and John and James, and they start talking and the Judaizers come in and they start trying to shake things up, saying that Titus needs to be circumcised. And they, they all come together and say that, that no, that, that's not part of the message. We are saved by grace through faith, circumcision, keeping the law. These are not things that have to be done in order for someone to be saved. And so they clarify the gospel message right there, and they come together in cooperation and say we're going to minister. They recognize uh, that they were equally called. They were equally apostles. They were preaching the same message to the glory of the same God, but that God had given them unique commissions to reach out to different uh, people that Paul was to go to the Gentiles and Peter was specifically go to go to the Jews. Um, and in light of all this, remember, we saw them kind of shake hands and embrace and, and they were about this mission together. They were cooperating. They had clarified the gospel and they were going to work together for its spread. And it's and it's a beautiful picture of this cooperation between Jerusalem and Antioch, between 
Peter and, and Paul, between uh, these, these men who some had thought were at odds, and now we see them together, working together for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. And that beautiful unity is, is what makes verses 11 through 14 seem so strange. Remember, we see this picture of them working together. They've clarified the gospel. They say, we believe the same thing. We're going to work together. And now look what happens in Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 11 through 16. Paul writes, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came... He began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed that Christ believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So what was going on here? What was the issue in Antioch between Paul and Peter? And and why did it require such a strong reaction from Paul? What had happened to this unity that we just witnessed in the previous verses? And of course, the other question that we need to ask this morning is, what does it matter to us 2,000 years later that Peter and Paul had this argument? Well, as we consider this passage, I actually want to consider that that last question, kind of the application question, and to use the lessons that we can learn from this as a way of of walking through the passage here. So I want us to notice first that hypocrisy is a danger that we all face. Hypocrisy is a danger that we all face. Let's get our timeline again here. Remember, we're walking through this. After verse 10, uh, we Paul and Barnabas left Jerusalem. They returned to Antioch. And, and as we try to put this timeline together, we can imagine that the, the events of Acts 13 through 14 took place after this second visit to Jerusalem, but before the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. Let me explain that a little bit more clearly. Uh, in other words, Paul returned from this trip to Jerusalem that we talked about last week. Um, and after that, there he was in Antioch in Acts 13, and, and the elders are there together. They're prompted by the Holy Spirit to set apart, the, the Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the mission that I have appointed for them. This was the mission to be their missionaries out of the church at Antioch into the Galatian region. So Paul and Barnabas had, had been in Jerusalem. They leave, they go back to Antioch. They're in Antioch. The church sets them apart and sends them as missionaries to the Galatian region, to the people that he's writing to. So they go as missionaries there and then return back to Antioch. And at some point after their return from that missionary trip, Peter makes a trip to Antioch. That's what happens here in verse 
11, but when, when Cephas, when Peter came to Antioch. So Peter shows up um, in Antioch. I, I'm not really sure why, but, but Peter is there. He, he comes to Antioch. Um, and as we read this, I just want us to remember that, that the church is still in many ways, it's, it's in its, it's in its infancy. They, they'd hammered out clearly. We remember they hammered out clearly what the message of the gospel was. It's salvation by grace through faith in Christ for all Jew and Gentile alike. But the implications of that truth, they were still working that out. What does this look like in everyday life for Jew and Gentile who had been separated for so long to now come together, not only come together, but to, to be meeting in the same church, to be eating meals together? What's this going to look like? We believe it, but what's that look like in our daily lives? So whatever's going on here, what we know is that, that Peter knew better. Um, he knew better than to do what he was doing. He was separating himself from the Gentiles in favor of associating with the Jews. He was called to be the apostle to the Jews, but, but he had been the one who had opened the door to the Gentiles. If you, if you were to go back and read in Acts 10 and 11, you might recall this vision that Peter had. You remember this vision of the sheet? This, this sheet is lowered down and it's, it's filled with all different kinds of animals, unclean animals. And the voice of the Lord says to him, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to eat that. And his reaction is the same all three times that the sheet comes down. And immediately after that, Peter realizes that the message just isn't about whether or not food is clean or unclean, but it's about people because he goes downstairs and people from a man named Cornelius have been sent there to find Peter so that Peter can take the gospel to them. But Cornelius was a Gentile. And so Peter shows up in in Cornelius's house. He travels there and he starts telling the gospel to these non-Jews. He tells them about Jesus. And when the whole house believes, it's like a second Pentecost happens with these Gentile believers. And Peter looks and he says, well, God must be in this. It doesn't make sense to me, but God must be here. And he comes back to Jerusalem and, and they start asking him, what happened while you were there with Cornelius? And he says, well, I know they're Gentiles, but I, I preached the gospel to them. I told them about Jesus and they believed and the spirit came and filled them just like the spirit filled us. And, and so he, this is what he says when he's in Jerusalem in, in Acts chapter 11. He says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? They say, it says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So Peter was at the front line of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. It, he was almost unwilling at first. He didn't really know what he was doing, but he goes and he preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit comes and fills them. And he says, I, I couldn't stand in the way of what God was doing. They received it through repentance and faith, just like we did. And they received the spirit. And, and so the, the people in Jerusalem kind of say, well, I guess that's what God's doing. We don't fully understand it, but that's what God is doing. He's taking the gospel to, to all nations. So Peter, like I said, he, he knew better. He knew that the that God's heart was to save all people, to save all nations through the gospel. And he, he followed that pot, that path. He began to sit down and to, to eat with Gentiles, to, to meet with them as he had opportunity. 
he may have kept strict dietary laws. He was he was free to do that to keep the old Jewish laws. He he may have tried a little pork just because he could. Um, but, but we're not really sure what he did. But but he knows that that God has opened up the door. That there there are no unclean foods, and now there are no unclean people that cannot receive the gospel either. Of course, uh, this was we think about sitting down and eating with someone. And that doesn't seem like a very big deal to us. But to eat with someone was to be closely associated with them, to approve of them in many ways. And and the Jews, the Pharisees in particular, they had specific dietary laws, and, and they, they wouldn't eat the same thing, and so they chose to just not eat with the same the people who, who didn't eat the same things that they did. You remember that this was the issue that they had with Jesus, wasn't it? That he ate with sinners. They accused him of being a glutton and a drunk. And the accusation was rooted in the fact that he ate with people that they would never have eaten with. But Jesus was modeling something. He was modeling the coming kingdom. He was modeling what will be true fully when he returns. But he was also modeling what was going to happen when the gospel came and, and broke down all these walls where your acceptance has nothing to do with, with who you are or what you've done. It has to do with the fact that you have accepted Jesus. So we can picture Peter. This is my imagination maybe running a little wild, but we can picture Peter entering the potluck at Antioch. And he's got this vision of the sheet maybe in the back of his head and everything that, that had happened with, with Cornelius. He, he's, he's seen that. Um, he also had this, this discussion with Paul and Barnabas and Titus where, where they had clearly said, you know, the gospel is, is for all people. Um, and so He's in in Jerusalem. You know, the church was mostly Jewish. He didn't have a whole lot of opportunities, maybe, to sit down and and eat with people who weren't Jews. But now he's in Antioch. He came to visit, and, and he gets his plate full, and he turns and he looks at all the tables that are there, and he has to decide, okay, where am I going to sit? There's this diverse group gathered here, and I have a decision to make. Do I do I look for the Jewish table, or do I look at this room not as divided by Jew and Gentile, but as united, as a, as a place where everyone here has Christ in common. That These are people who have accepted the gospel, and so I can sit wherever I want. So he's standing there, maybe holding his tray, deciding where to eat, and, and he looks down and he sees his WWJD bracelet. He says, what would Jesus do? I remember when I was with Jesus. Jesus sat with anyone. He didn't make any distinctions. And so Peter decides that he is going to share a meal with with his brothers and sisters. Whether they were of a different race or ethnicity or social standing, it didn't matter to him. He was blind to the foods that were in front of them and to the works of the law that they had kept or not kept. It didn't matter if they were circumcised or not. He was going to sit and he was going to eat with them. And so there's a, a win for the gospel there with Peter. that he, he was willing to sit wherever. He was willing to sit with anyone. This may have gone on for, for some time during his visit to Antioch and until the people from James came. Look at what the text says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming, so prior to he was doing what he was supposed to do, prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw. And hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. 
maybe he was sitting there and the men from James came in. He, he didn't know that they were coming, but they showed up and he quickly got up out of his seat. because He wasn't sure what they would think of him sitting there with the Gentiles. It, we're not sure. It, it doesn't seem that James had sent them as spies, you know, go, go see what Peter's doing. Uh, the, judging by, by James's actions um, in the previous visit and then in the Jerusalem council, he seemed to understand this truth as well. Um, but we don't know what their personal agenda was as they came. What, what, were, what were they doing when they showed up? But whatever was going on, Peter was a, a little wary about what was happening. And, and it got bad. I mean, he, he gets up. It says he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And in verse 13, it says the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. I've read that and I've thought about it many times, but it really struck me this week as I read it because of what we did what we did just read. And as you think about this timeline, where Paul and Barnabas come and they're vying saying, yes, Gentiles can be Christians just just like Jews can. They can receive Jesus in the same way. And Barnabas is, is fresh off the mission field in Galatia where he's seen he's seen Gentiles coming to faith. And he ends up getting drawn away and saying, well, I, I, I'm going to follow Peter. I'm going to go with the rest of the Jews because I'm, I'm Jewish and they're Gentiles. What's, what's going on here? And you can almost hear Paul's voice. He's saying, Barnabas. I, I mean, not Barnabas, anyone, but, but Barnabas? He got carried away in this too. When Paul sees what's happening, he takes action right away. He doesn't accuse them of being pseudo-Christians, which is what happened earlier. You remember that? Um, he was talking about the Judaizers and said that they were pseudo-Christians. Um, but he, he, he does, he comes at them, he, he, he calls them hypocrites. He doesn't say they're pseudo-Christians. He says that they are Hypocrites. He says that they are play acting, that they are pretending. As a father of, of young kids, I have many opportunities to pretend. My kids are really good at playing pretend games. And last night we played animal charades, where you had to act like a certain. And I think I think Elaine learned this from Hannah. But um, we were playing animal charades. Now, as we played this, there wasn't one moment in that time where I felt like I was actually a squirrel. Or that I that I thought that I was a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex or a jellyfish. We, that's what I acted like. I know I don't know why I picked those animals, but that's what I picked. There wasn't a moment I was pretending. I was I was play acting. It's not. I, I I believe that I am a human being. I know that I am a human being, but I was acting contrary to what I believe I am. And that was the problem with with Peter and now with Barnabas. It wasn't their theology. It was the practical outworkings of that. Did they believe that Gentiles were full-fledged Christians? Yes. Did they think that the fact that they had not been circumcised or that they ate the wrong foods made them less children of God? No, they didn't think that. But their actions spoke contrary to what they believed. They were saying one thing, but they were acting like they believed something totally different. That's what hypocrisy is. And those actions, what were they driven by? The text tells us. It says, um, verse 12, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. Why? Fearing the party of the circumcision. 
It was fear, the text says. Fear of what? Well, it says fear of the party of the circumcision. Fear of, it's hard to know exactly. If I'm putting myself in Peter's shoes, maybe fear of being looked down on. Fear of losing certain Jewish privileges. Fear of being associated with the wrong people. It sure looks a lot like like just fear of man. Fear of being seen differently from how we want others to see us. Suddenly that fear of man transforms into pride. He didn't want people to think about him in a way he didn't want them to think about him. We know this feeling because of our sinful hearts. I mean, we we have been filled with, with embarrassment when someone we respect or someone we know or someone that we're trying to impress finds us hanging out with someone that they might look down on. Someone that we wouldn't normally hang out with. We almost want to explain ourselves. Well, I'm having this meal with this person because of A, B, C. I don't want you to think that this is what I always do. I'm not, I'm not always hanging out with people like this. One of the former students in the youth ministry that I was a part of, on his Facebook today, he asked, or not today, this week, he asked this question, uh, when does high school end? And as I thought about that, I realized I don't think it ever ends. It's almost as if we're always living in this perpetual world of high school. It's it's this sense that our life feels like the cafeteria where you have to sit at the right table with the right people to not be looked down on. Um, and, and if you end up sitting with an outcast and someone else sees you, well, you have to get out of that situation as, as quickly as possible to prove that, that you're better than them, that, that you're not like that. Why? Because, because we're afraid of people. We're afraid of what they might think of us. And we are pridefully concerned that people see us with the right people and not with the wrong people. I think a question that we ask and that I've, I've seen people ask is, was Peter's defection, was it, was it racism? Was it racially motivated? Or was it ethnically motivated? It's hard to say for sure, but it could have been. And it surely was probably in some people's hearts. They didn't like the Gentiles because they were Gentiles, because they weren't Jews. That's, that's an ethnic distinction. So as I read that, I have to look and say, you know, are there, are there seeds of that in my heart? Are there seeds of, of racism? Are there certain ethnicities or, or races that, that you might say with your mouth that they are welcome at our church? They're welcome in my home. But in practice, you would be a little wary if they came through your front door. Maybe it's not race. Maybe it's, it's class. I mean, is there a, a certain income level that someone has to reach before you can be their friend? before you will allow them um, into the door, before you will willingly share the gospel with them. You say that you welcome all people, but how many of them have, how many diverse people have sat around your table? That's something I think of as, as a parent. I can preach that God's heart is for all people, but is that my heart? Do my kids see a diversity of people coming into my home? I love that they come to our church and they see a diversity of people. I think that's so good for them to grow up with from different ethnicities, different people. But is that something that I'm modeling or is it something that I believe but I'm a hypocrite about? I say I can speak and talk well about those things, but is it something that I'm practicing? We have to know, too, that that our cowardice, our our fear, our hypocrisy is, is not something that only affects us. I mean, if Barnabas could be drawn away because of Peter, then people could be drawn away because of you, 
because of the way that, that you act, the way that you interact with the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if, if we can learn anything from the hypocrisy of Peter, even of Barnabas, it's that hypocrisy is a danger that we all face. It's something that we can all fall prey to. The gospel is open to all people. There, there are no barriers to anyone who can come to the gospel, but there are often barriers in our hearts about who we want to be associated with. Who do we want to come to our church? When we say we want anyone to receive the gospel to come to our church, well, what if anyone starts coming? And what are we going to do? What's our response going to be? And I'll say this, as Grace Fellowship Church, we have a head start. We are already diverse in many ways. We we have a large number of Filipinos, and we've got white Americans like myself and other ethnicities mixed in. But it's easy to look this way and still harbor hypocrisy in our hearts. Yes, I love this church. I love all the people. I love all the different ethnicities that are a part of our church, but I don't sit with everyone at Potluck. I'm not saying that I've seen that happen. I'm just saying this is something that can be in our hearts to, to realize that that these, these things, they, they creep up in us, that the gospel is open to all people, but we as, as fallen people, we start making divisions. It's a strange thing. It's strange to see that, that, that it happens with, with Peter here. But the gospel comes into all of our prejudices, and it helps us to see that there's no requirement to sit at the table other than to be in need of Jesus. And we all need Jesus. So everyone's welcome at the table. So we've put ourselves in Peter's shoes. We've seen that um, that hypocrisy is a danger that we all face. Uh, but let's put ourselves into Paul's shoes for a minute. For, and from his vantage point, I, I think this is the lesson that we learn. It's we are responsible to confront those caught in hypocrisy. We are responsible to confront those caught in hypocrisy. Read this again with me and watch Paul. It says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to coming, the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Paul is very bold. We looked at this even in our Sunday school class this morning, just how bold he is with the truth of the gospel. And we've hinted at it, but I want to be very clear. Paul confronted Peter because his hypocrisy was a gospel issue. Paul confronted Peter because his hypocrisy was a gospel issue. You see that in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, then he confronts them. He says they were walking crooked as regards the gospel. The, the problem that, that we've seen is that this kind of hypocrisy that Peter was falling into was, was causing onlookers, it was, it was causing other people to question whether or not Gentiles were full Fledged Christians, probably. As we said, Peter Peter believed that they were, but the way that he was acting 
by disengaging from them, by not hanging out with them, and by hanging out with the Jews exclusively, by doing that, he was communicating something different than what he really believed. And Paul would have none of it because he was causing other people to stumble. Peter knew what he believed, but his actions were contrary, and his actions were then pulling other people away because he was being a hypocrite. So Paul got in Peter's face. <laughs> That's what it says. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. He went toe-to-toe with Peter in the presence of everyone. I think it's safe to assume that Paul probably talked to Peter beforehand at least once. Matthew 18 calls us to do that, to keep the offense as small as it is. I would assume that Paul did that. Again, I'm assuming. I'm not positive on that. But So we would say this may not be the first time that Paul talked to Peter about this issue. Um, but when Peter's behavior didn't change, he, he confronted him, and he confronted him publicly. This is what uh, 1 Timothy, Paul writes in 1 Timothy, um, chapter 5, he says this, just so we know that um, this is not something that, this is something that we're called to do. It says in, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, it says, Those who continue in sin rebuke, where? In the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So there, there is a time for public rebuke. Paul writes that, that those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest will not will be fearful of sinning. So it's easy to see why Paul had to do this, because otherwise people like Barnabas would continue to defect, and, and the church in Antioch is going to, it's going to split along racial and, and ethnic lines, if not other lines. And then the message of the gospel gets completely distorted. People begin to wonder, are, are we saved and, and sanctified by works or, or by faith? I'm confused because people are saying this, but then they're splitting up, Jews and Gentiles, and they're acting differently. And I'm, I'm not understanding the gospel because of the way that people are acting and separating. So you see, that's, that's the, why Paul is so bold on this, because it's a gospel issue. Remember that, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, about the truth of the gospel. So we learn from Paul that, that we must be willing and ready to lovingly but sternly confront those who are caught in hypocrisy because it undermines the message of the gospel. We don't do it joyfully. And we keep it within the circles that we can. If, if the confrontation can be kept small, then, then we do it. But if it can be a lonely place. Can you imagine what that was like for Paul, that, that Barnabas wasn't even there to back him up? Barnabas had been there when he went to Jerusalem, and they stood together when they talked to the pillars of the church. But Paul's all by himself in this situation, because, because Barnabas has gone over with, with Peter now. And Paul's got to come, and he has to stand in front of Peter face to face and confront him with boldness and with love. But we see that he's clear about the gospel. If we're going to confront people like this, we have to be clear about the truth of the gospel. We're not going to delve totally into these verses. We'll cover them at another time. But he says, what's he say? He says, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? He's saying the, what, the way that you're acting and what you're calling people to do is contrary to what you believe. What do you really believe, Peter? He, says, he tells them what he really believes in verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Does verse 16 seem redundant to you? He says the same thing three times. He says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So are you justified by works of the law? No, you're justified by faith in Christ Jesus. He says, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified. How? By faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. So how are you justified? By faith in Christ. Is it by works of the law? No, it's not by works of the law. But he has to say it one more time, I guess. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Does Paul think that you can be justified by works of the law? No. Does Paul think that you are justified by faith in Christ? Yes. And he's trying to make that very clear to Peter. Listen, Peter, works of the law don't matter. It's faith in Christ. We sung about it this morning so clearly. And and when Matt prayed, my heart welled up and said, yes, I, I, I can bring nothing. I can bring only need to the table. I can bring my sin to Christ. I can't bring any good works. And the gospel is that God has come. God has come and he's taken the punishment for our sin in the person of Jesus. And, and he has lived the righteous life that we could not so that by faith we can be justified. We can be made right with God. And we come to him how? By faith. Not by works of the law. God is glorified in that not us. So we need to know the gospel as we confront people. And and Paul does. He, he doesn't confront with, with nitpicky little details. He confronts with the gospel. He says, Peter, your hypocrisy, it's, it's undermining the truth of the gospel and it's pulling people away from that truth. What was Peter's reaction? We don't really know. It's not recorded. It, it could be that when Paul was writing this, the issue hadn't been fully resolved. Maybe Paul's addressing it here because the Judaizers in Galatia were up there saying, you guys, Paul has gone, he's gone way off in left field. He confronted Peter at Potluck. I mean, you, you don't want to follow this guy. He's, he's losing it. And Paul is, he's not, he's not stepping away from this and saying, I did something wrong. He's actually saying this as the capstone to his apostleship. He's saying, listen, I'm fighting for this. I'll, I'll go toe-to-toe with Peter if I have to, to to prove that I believe that the gospel, that you are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works of the law. This is, this is how strong I am, how much I believe this. This was a mark of his apostleship. Now, maybe it wasn't fully resolved here, but we know that it's fully resolved at the Jerusalem Council. They all come together again, and, and it's almost like verses... Um, 1 through 10 of chapter 2, or the, the pre-Jerusalem council, where they try to work it out, then they come back and they see, well, the practical outworkings of this are really hard. So there's this confrontation between Peter and Paul, and they say, okay, listen, guys, we got to get together. Let's go to Jerusalem and try to, let's hash this out, get something down on paper so that we know where we stand on this. And that's what happens in the Jerusalem council. Again, there's this, um, the infancy of the church. So the issue is settled once and for all. Sort of. Because these kinds of issues are always cropping up in the church. 
and they will continue to until Jesus returns and we all, all, every one of us sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb at the same table, Jew, Gentile, and everyone in between. Until then, we strive to be straightforward about the gospel. We strive to, to avoid hypocrisy. And we reveal it in others when we see it, and when it starts to undermine the truth of the gospel, that all are saved. We have a lovely little nativity at our house. And on the, on the left side are the shepherds, the outcasts of society, the smelly, stinky shepherds. But despite their rejection by some, they were chosen by God as the first to meet the Messiah. Christmas morning, the night that he was born. The shepherds are on the left. On the right are the wise men. Now, historically, I know that they probably were not there at the actual birth, but they're included in this, this narrative that Luke gives us. So the wise men are there, these, these non-Jews from the east, the astrologers, we might say. They traveled to see the king of the Jews. They brought all these expensive gifts they came sometime after Jesus' birth. They were probably surprised to find him in the house that they found him in, but they were there. They came with their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh, these expensive gifts. So you've got the smelly, stinky shepherds, the outcasts of society. And then you've got the kings, the, the wise men from the east, these non-Jews with riches and dressed in finery. And they're on the other side of my and then, and then the Joseph is, is kind of near the center. Joseph, to me, he stands there and he's this, this picture of, of Jewish piety, of, of godly humility, of following after what God had called him to do. And he's next to, to his new wife, this new bride, this new teenage mother. And she kneels and she's holding a baby. And if you look at that, if you see that picture, it's, it's really kind of a strange thing. The shepherds and and the wise men and and Joseph and and Mary, what do they have in common? How do they all fit in this this scene? It doesn't really make sense, except that Jesus is at the center. Why were they all there? Why would this group of people ever be represented as a group as having anything in common? They were there not because they had anything in common. Their unity wasn't rooted in themselves. They are there bowing before Jesus. They are there because Jesus is the center and they have Christ in common. And why are we here? We're not here because we have anything in common except for Jesus, except for our faith in him. So what if you came to my house and you saw that nativity and you said, you know, these shepherds do not belong in this nativity. I'm taking them out. They're poor. They're stinky. They were outcasts of society. They don't belong here worshiping Jesus. And so you take the shepherds off of my nativity. Or maybe you come and you say, wise men from the east. I mean, these guys are pagans. They're not even Jewish. They don't belong near Jesus. Or, or you could even go as far as to say, you know, I would prefer that Jesus is at the center and that Mary's not holding them. You know, Mary's past. We're not really sure what happened. It was a little sketchy. To which I'm going to say, don't touch my nativity. (laughs) 
Because they're not there because they deserve to be there. They're there because Jesus invites them to be there. Because he has inclined their hearts to worship him as their Savior, as their Lord, as their King. And if they're not allowed there, Lord, we, we love the truth of the gospel because it's not about us. It's not about what we have to bring to the table because we don't have anything to bring to the table. But you have called us. You have called us to be your children. And you've called us together from, from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, from different classes from different countries and we're together not because of anything in us but because of who you are all we have is christ or forgive us for looking it down on people for whatever reason help us to see ourselves in actuality in in who we really are that, that we truly are sinners that we truly do have nothing to bring to you, but that you've invited us to come and sit at your table and to eat with you. And you don't care what anyone else thinks about it. You've invited us to be there with you. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with that kind of acceptance and love, that we would invite anyone to come and sit at the table, that we would not be prejudiced against anyone for what they believe or for, for, for who they are. But if they believe in you, if we have Christ in common, then we are united then we are together. We make that the testimony of our church, that we would be like the nativity, that people would come and they would say, this doesn't make sense, except that Jesus is at the middle and he brings it all together. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.